Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. My guest today is not Giles McDonough. I hope I said that's right. Sorry if I didn't. But uh, yes, and uh, of course, this, th- th- today we're going to talk about a rather, rather, I would say, peculiar king of ba- Bavaria, King Ludwig II, known as the Swan, Swan King. And uh, of course, as always, how did you get into this this peculiar king, as I'm said? How did I get into this peculiar uh, king? Well, I'm actually more a, 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 a historian of Prussia hmm. than Bavaria. Um, but last year I did three lecture tours in Bavaria, so I'm um, fairly up to date with um, with King Ludwig. Um, so uh, that's um, but essentially I'm a historian of Germany and Austria, um, and um, uh, that is how I get to know uh, Ludwig. And Ludwig has to interact much to Ludwig's um, um, unhappiness with uh, the Prussian kings and that sort of thing. And his mother was a Prussian princess, which is not to be forgotten. Hmm. So, of course, that's because most people, like myself, and we talked about this before we started recording, is probably mostly familiar with Germany after Bismarck's time. So, But it wasn't a unified... And we talked about this on the podcast before, that it wasn't a unified kingdom. It was much like, I would say, Italy... At the time, it was several smaller kingdoms, and as you mentioned before the podcast, it was Bavaria wasn't actually un- created until Napoleon. So let's create, let's talk about the creation of Bavaria first before we go into Ludwig II. Oh, but Bavaria existed and had existed since um, uh, since uh, it became a, a Christian entity in what the Eighth century, um, the Bavarians managed to fight off at the famous Battle of Lackenfeld in seven fifty five. They fought off the heathen Hungarians, um, and from that moment onwards, uh, Bavaria was established with its own dukes. So it was a very old um, uh, uh, principality, dukedom, which uh, the Wittelsbach, a particular family, had ruled since eleven eighty six. I think it was. So the Wittelsbachs are a very old dynasty in Germany who had ruled uh, in their part of South Germany uh, since the end of the 12th century and continued to rule there until 1918 when they were packed off. So uh, the Wittelsbachs themselves considered themselves to be behind the Habsburgs, the most important dynasty in Germany. Um, Now, some German areas had become kingdoms in the 18th century and the late 17th, early 18th century. So Saxony, for example, Hanover, 
um, and uh, eventually Prussia in 701 became kingdoms, subservient to the emperor in Vienna, but kingdoms. Now, uh, Bavaria didn't get that honor until 1806, and that was largely because they'd been siding with the French um, during the Napoleonic Wars. So then in 1806, Bavaria became a kingdom too. But the uh, Wittelsbachs were intermarried with the Habsburgs, being Catholics, which is something the Prussians wouldn't obviously have done, or the Hanoverians. Or, um, and uh, because they were intermarried with the Habsburgs, they saw themselves very much as a, a, a family that could replace the Habsburgs. And when the Habsburgs ha ran out of boys, of male children, in 1740, the uh, Wittelsbachs, the rulers of Bavaria, tried to take over the empire. And one of their electors, that is the prin ruling princes, became very, very briefly, I think for two years, Holy Roman Emperor until he was chased away and replaced by the husband of a Habsburg princess. Um, and then the Habsburgs become Habsburg Lorraines because the two families were united like that. But that branch of the Habsburgs, uh, sorry, of the Wittelsbachs, died out in 1788. There were no more Wittelsbachs in that line. So uh, there was a little war, uh, the war of the Bavarian succession. And when that ended, a minor branch of the Wittelsbachs from Zweibrücken took over in Munich and became the electors that is to say, the ruling princes, and that branch it was that was made kings in 1806, and it was from that branch that our subject today, uh, Ludwig of Bavaria, came. So he, doesn't, he didn't come from the main branch because that had died out. So let's talk about the upbringing of Ludwig, and we will come back into this later about the burdens, but let's talk about Ludwig's upbringing and education. Well, Ludwig was born the son of King Max, uh, uh, who was uh, uh, had uh, this. Um, uh, he was, you know, he was the the prince, the son of Ludwig the First. So he was going to become king. So Max was a prince, um, the crown prince, if you like, and uh, therefore Ludwig, little Ludwig, lived in the residence that is the big. Uh, uh, palace in the centre of Munich and was brought up there. And he was also brought up in Hornschwangau, which was a little uh, yellow castle, which still exists, right next to um, uh, uh, right next to the, the, the famous uh, palace of uh, that Ludwig built. Um, um, and uh, there he was brought up with pictures of uh, German legends, particularly Bavarian legends of Lohengrin and Tannhäuser and that sort of thing. All these legends that were vaguely Bavarian, vaguely Franconian, that were later to form subject matter for uh, Richard Wagner, the man who uh, uh, that uh, Ludwig honoured beyond all people on earth. So as a little boy, he grew up. In a, in a palace and a country house decorated with pictures of knights. And later on, as he got older, uh, Wagner would write music about this because there was no real connection between this, but this was the romantic uh, folklore which inspired the little Ludwig as he was growing up both in Munich and in Hohenschwangau, 
So uh, that was an important side of his early education. Now, he didn't have a huge amount of time for his father, uh, Marx, um, but he had less time, in a way, for his mother, because his mother, uh, Princess Maria, was a Prussian. And uh, all his life, uh, Ludwig rather rejected this side of his nature, that his mother, who was a formerly Protestant princess, the, the Wittelsbach obviously being Catholic, a formerly Protestant princess who obviously had to agree to become Catholic to marry the future king of Bavaria, mm. he's, he's thought of her in a slightly unhappy way that she represented the traditions of Prussia, which had become a much more powerful country, almost as if it, it had overtaken the Wittelsbachs, which made the romantic Ludwig unhappy about his mother's birth and the fact that he had his mother's blood. But of course, on that side of his family, the, the Hohenzollern side, the Prussian side of his family, there was lots of romanticism too, that, um, uh, that Maria's cousin was Friedrich Wilhelm IV, King of Prussia, who built all, or sorry, restored all these castles on the Rhine. And Friedrich Wilhelm IV had built lots of buildings through his court architect, Schinkel, who was the most famous architect of the time. And it was Friedrich Wilhelm IV who uh, uh, decided that they were going to finish building Cologne Cathedral, which was intended to be the largest cathedral in Europe in the Middle Ages. But at the end of the Middle Ages, it remained unfinished with just the choir and certain parts of the front of the cathedral had been built. So from the 1840s onwards, Friedrich Wilhelm IV, who was um, uh, the uncle, essentially, or the great uncle, I think the uncle of uh, little Ludwig, um, started rebuilding uh, Cologne Cathedral and constructing the edifice that we can still see today, which is this enormous uh, Gothic cathedral finished in the 19th century as part of a national project uh, for reviving Gothic architecture in Germany. So there were plenty of precedents on the side. And then on the other side that he got from the Prussian side, Ludwig uh, inherited, obviously, the blood, not quite the blood because he had no children, but the blood of the family of Frederick the Great, who was a famous uh, king in the 18th century, um, who uh, fought it obviously against the Catholic Bavarians and that sort of thing, who built these wonderful uh, buildings like Sanssouci in their Rococo style, and who also, strangely enough, was a rather embittered homosexual man. And this is what Ludwig himself was going to become in his way. So it begs an obvious question, how much of the Prussian side actually was in Ludwig, something that he rejected himself, but which in many ways he resembled some of his mother's family. Hmm. And we talked about this as well, of course, he would, and we talked about this off the record, and that he was more, more romantic side, that he wished to be more tied to the Bourbons dynasty of France as well, but that's more like a romantic dream, as we discussed before. The yes, but there are... There... Even in the architecture, there are two sides. If you take Gothic, um, uh, each one of these great buildings, very interesting way that he does that. But, you know, he wants a castle in each different sort. You know, he wants one of these, one of these, one of these. 
So when he uh, builds uh, Horn Kimse, for example, it is a Bourbonschloss that is meant to look like Versailles. Um, so uh, that is his, uh, his Versailles uh, imitation. But in other buildings, he uses a Rococo style, which is very much like Sans Souci was to uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia. So you know, he's got a collection of buildings in all sorts of different styles. Some of them were never built. And there was one that was going to be built that was completely Byzantine in its inspiration. So you see different inspirations with different styles of architecture in each one of the palaces. You know, it's not, he's not fixed on one particular style. He wants his tribute to the Bourbon because the Bourbon represent to him not only what he sees as his family, but he also sees it as a sort of monarchy, which is an absolute monarchy, which he wants for himself because he doesn't want to be a constitutional monarch. He finds the idea of being a constitutional monarch something quite disgusting. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Yet, after 1848 and the revolution in Bavaria, Bavaria was a constitutional monarchy. It was something he couldn't do anything about. And his final tendency from in the last 10 or 15 years of his life was to go and hide himself in the hills and in its different constructions and that sort of thing, because he didn't want anything to do with the rather disgusting side of being uh, a monarch by the grace of the people, which didn't appeal to him at all. Hmm. And something else that I found fascinating about him was that he did like, I do believe he liked dressing up as well. Then... Yes, I think he did. He liked sort of dressing up. He liked reciting poetry with other favourite boys around him um, and uh, reciting poetry, dressing up, reenacting uh, the legends of uh, Bavaria, you know, the Tannhäuser legends and this sort of thing, Parsifal. Um, and so he enjoyed all that. Uh, sort of, uh, and reading plays and uh, uh, and acting things out um, that very much appealed to him. Mm. And if I remember correctly, he would keep doing this until late, not just as a kid, but throughout his life as well. Yes, throughout his life, he used to enlist actors from the court theatres to come and act with him and read to him. I mean, he was a very impatient figure. He put these people through a terrible time when they were with him because I suppose he was probably, as we would say today, bipolar. So, you know, it wasn't just that he, through uh, depression, went in and out of stability, mental stability, and rather more uh, instability by the end, is that he replaced night with day. So he was only really up in the evening. And anybody who was employed to come and read to him or do that sort of thing had to adopt his hours, which meant that they were up all night and only went to bed in the morning. Mm. Of course, let's talk about his succession to the throne. And like we established earlier on, he never was close to his father or his mother. But he, even he admitted that he, he, because he could become king at early age, at age 18. So, so yes. he, he, even he stated himself that he felt that he was king, became king too soon. Yes, he probably did become king too soon, um, although I wonder if it would have made uh, any difference in the long run. Um, he uh, became king, uh, as you say, at the age of 18, very quickly, 
the political events in Germany uh, brought about a sort of crisis in his um, understanding of his role. For a start, as I said, he was a constitutional monarch. There was a, a, a parliament in Bavaria, which was something he was terribly keen on. But at first he played the game. Um, you know, he went out, he saw his troops, he went to Munich, he lived in Munich. He, he had rooms designed, new rooms designed that would be part of his fantasy. Uh, within the enormous uh, city palace in uh, Munich. Um, but in 1866, the Brudecree broke out, the War of the Brothers, the Civil War in uh, Germany, which was essentially to see which uh, of the two main powers within Germany, Prussia or Austria, was going to essentially uh, lead uh, the German states in the future. And as we all know these, this, this war was won by the Prussians, which meant that essentially almost immediately a North German confederation was formed in 1866 under the Prussians, which meant the whole of North Germany essentially became Prussian. And that uh, Bavaria, although it remained outside this um, uh, uh, Prussian North Germany, it, uh, uh, the role of Austria was forever eliminated within the German uh, uh, land. So from that point onwards, it was almost inevitable that uh, Bavaria would have to play second fiddle to Prussia. And then just four years later, with the Franco-Prussian War, or better still, Franco-German War, um, uh, Bismarck uh, uh, slightly encouraged a misunderstanding between Prussia uh, and France which, of course, uh, made the, the emperor the, uh, of uh, France, uh, Napoleon III, believe he had a chance to go in and collect a few states on the left bank of the Rhine and uh, fell into the trap of believing that he was going to win a war against Germany, which he promptly lost. And this, of course, provoked a much greater crisis with Ludwig because he had to, for the sake of his people, who were quite keen on this war against France, he was very pro-French, I might add, and visited Paris several times in the 1860s, that, uh, that Ludwig would have to agree to having Bavaria playing second fiddle to Prussia and honouring the King of Prussia, who became the German Emperor in 1871. Now, Ludwig agreed to this and wrote the famous Kaiserbrief the, uh, the emperor's letter, where he gave his brother the uh, permission to arrive at the court of Versailles and show the letter, which meant that Bavaria would allow the, uh, uh, the Prussian king to become German emperor. But behind the scenes, Bismarck, who actually quite liked Ludwig, and thought he was quite a good person, um, probably for many, many different reasons, but Bismarck was never unkind about Ludwig. Bismarck, of course, had made off in 1866 with the treasury of Hanover, which he used as what he would call the Guelfenforms. This was a sum of money which could be used politically. And with this Guelfenforms, he was able to give money to the always harder Ludwig uh, in order to carry out his architectural projects. So that uh, he essentially bought Ludwig off by giving him a, a very large uh, amount of money every year for the rest of his life. Did they feel like the Bismarck feel like he should exploit Ludwig in the, in a sense? 
I think so, in a little way. I mean, you know, the fact that uh, that Ludwig played ball with Bismarck obviously made Bismarck like him all the more. But Bismarck was never uh, rude about him in the way that some people were, never sort of uh, exploited it too much. You know, he was uh, well-behaved in what he was doing. And uh, he knew, of course, that Ludwig was going to incur enormous debts. Part of the problem there was Ludwig's grandfather, who had been deposed as king um, in 1848 and had this extravagant uh, Irish mistress called Lola Montez, um, that Ludwig I was the man who created the beauties of, of Munich as they existed before the Second World War, was a great builder, an architect, a lover of the arts. And Ludwig adored his grandfather for obvious reasons. This was the sort of king that Ludwig wanted to be himself, like his grandfather, with lots of money in the treasury to spend on building magnificent buildings. Now, of course, in 1848, Ludwig I was deposed because he'd spent so much money and that sort of thing. It didn't go down particularly well with the people in Munich. Um, and until 1869, King Ludwig II had to keep King Ludwig I and pay his, uh, his bills and that sort of thing. So he had no money to spend on building palaces until his grandfather died. So, you know, this was useful in 1870, just as soon as he more or less got his, uh, his feet under the table, mm -hmm. that uh, Bismarck came along and gave him this bribe, which allowed him to start building. And it was at precisely the time when he got a bit more money, because he was no longer paying for his grandfather. Mm -hmm. so, so let's talk about his engagement and his sexual orientations. When, when he got married, and then he got married to his. Well, he got into. He was very. Um, he was very. Uh, um, uh, he got on very well with his cousins, uh, Elizabeth uh, Sissy, as she's known. Um, he, uh, and she was the daughter of the Duke in Bavaria, and they were uh, another branch of the Bavaria royal family that become estranged from the main branch. So being uh, his cousin, they lived on the other side of the Starnberger See, so very close to one of the palaces which uh, he lived in with his family when he was growing up. And so he used to enjoy seeing his uh, cousin uh, and riding with her and that sort of thing. And she eventually married Franz Josef, the emperor of uh, Austria. Um, she had a younger sister, and uh, so she was destined to um, become uh, Ludwig's wife. She liked Wagner as well, and they enjoyed reading the same sort of books. And I suppose at that stage that uh, Ludwig was going to, again, play ball. He was going to do what he had to do, and that is take a wife. But at the last moment, um, uh, you know, he couldn't face it because his inclination was, um, was homosexual. He had no desire to uh, have any sexual relations with a woman. This is to some degree speculation, but it is clearly obviously the case that he couldn't face the marriage and he broke off the engagement. He was never engaged to anybody else and nobody else was ever mentioned ever again. Um, and from that point of view, uh, there was a diary which he kept, which was destroyed in the Second World War, in which he spelled out his sexual 
um, uh, relations with people at court and that sort of thing, often servants in the, uh, at court who would uh, uh, essentially agree to go to bed with him or whatever they did. Um, but uh, that diary was destroyed in the war, as I said. But before then, the main excerpts of the diaries had been copied out and published. So we do have that evidence that um, he had these sexual relationships with men and that he suffered because he was actually quite a religious man. He prayed every night before he went to bed, I think for an hour or so. Um, and uh, therefore he believed what he was doing was sinful. Um, and so uh, the diaries are full of lamentations that he is actually doing something wrong in having sexual relations with these men. So um, that is clear, but he could not face uh, a conventional sexual relationship with a woman that would uh, bring about children that would be his heirs. And um, that didn't happen. Of course, he had his younger brother, Otto, who um, went properly mad. Now, sometimes people try to say that Ludwig was not mad, um, but Otto was definitely certifiably mad. So these two children of uh, King Max were both in their way, not only unstable, but um, to some extent uh, insane. How, how would you describe Ludwig as being mad? Was it because of his last building projects or was there anything else? Yes, that picture, see, we, we mentioned he was bipolar, but, you know, was there anything else? Well, lots of people now say that um, that he, he wasn't mad in the sense that people in the 19th century would say he was mad. But then our definitions of madness are probably more gentle than the definitions of 19th century people. So um, we probably wouldn't see depression as madness. We certainly wouldn't anymore. Hmm. And it's possible that all that Ludwig was really suffering from was extreme bouts of depression that got worse as he got older. Um, so, and I think that's the case, I mean. I'm no uh, psychiatrist, but I think that, you know, as you get older, these things do get worse. Nowadays, we treat these things with drugs, which treat the imbalance of chemicals in the blood and so that uh, um, people can uh, cope with depression. In those days, nobody knew how to cope with that depression. People like Bismarck didn't think he was mad, for example. You know, there is another example of Bismarck being quite sensitive to him. Um, so not everybody thought he was mad. Um, but certainly uh, his actions were difficult to understand for people who were either impatient with him or uh, um, wanted a conventional uh, monarch to be ruling in uh, Bavaria. Now, let's talk about, because we talked about this, he was a builder and he wanted to build like his grandfather. So let's talk, we talked about some of it, but let's talk more about his enormous building project. And he even had one building, I don't remember the name of the castle, but the castle that would put him in enormous debt that would never mm. be finished in his lifetime. And mm. Bavarian severe debts until, yeah, until he joined Germany, basically. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the building projects took off, as I say, as soon as his grandfather died. He had a bit more money in the kitty. So um, uh, they were started to some extent simultaneously because he had in his mind he wanted one like this. As I said earlier, one like this, one like this, one like this. 
Um, the earliest building projects took place in the residence in Munich. He built a huge uh, winter garden on the top floor of one wing of the residence, which then leaked and destroyed the rooms underneath. Um, so that wasn't a particularly successful episode. Um, after the bombing of Munich, they restored the residence, but they didn't rebuild the apartments that had been lived in by Ludwig II. So the furniture, such as it is, you, you can find at Hornkimse. Um, the most famous one, obviously, is um, uh, 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 is Neuschwanstein, which was this enormous uh, Gothic building, partially modelled on a Pierrefonds, uh, Chateau Pierrefonds in, in France, which he'd seen and uh, the architecture of the Duke, but there were other important elements in that too. And uh, that was definitely unfinished at the time of his death. Um, and the uh, other completely unfinished building that he did was, was a, a most astonishing project, was Horn Kimse, it's an island in the middle of the lake uh, near Preen in Bavaria, where he tried to reproduce uh, Versailles um, in all its forms. And so essentially, you know, the, the, the place looked like Versailles. Um, I think it was actually slightly bigger than Versailles. Mm -hmm. And yet Versailles had been constructed by Louis XIV so that he could keep his entire nobility under his nose so they couldn't plot against him. Whereas Ludwig built this idea of this uh, enormous uh, chateau, so he could get away from his nobility, uh, and uh, he was going to live in it all by himself. And the only uh, one of these projects to ever completely came to, uh, uh, to fruition, and I'm looking for the name of uh, the slightly smaller house near Oberammergau, which I can go look up in a moment, you know, um, is that that was the little Rococo little, but it was far too narrow um, in its conception, and therefore the rooms are tiny uh, for all the stuff that he's put in them. So as a result, it feels a little bit cramped there, whereas all the other ones, of course, have got massive amounts of space in them and that sort of thing. So um, uh, that uh, side of the building, that none of these things was ever going to be finished. But he played a very important role in the building. And I think uh, until I saw uh, uh, Neuschwanstein, for example, which I was slightly dreading, until I saw uh, Neuschwanstein, I thought it just looks, of course, like that Disney castle, um, which is very largely modeled on it. Um, and Yes, it can look a bit raw uh, from close up. It's essentially theatre architecture. He used a lot of theatre architects to build his projects. But when you go and you look at the furnishings and the wallpaper and the paintings and the individual paintings and every single detail in every single room is worked out to the smallest square inch and uh, Ludwig participated uh, in the planning of that furniture, in the choosing of the fabrics, in the choosing of the colours, in the depictions and the scenes. He said, I want it like this. 
And if it didn't go like that, just like his grandfather, he said, no, 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 you've got to start again. Uh, I don't want it like that. I want it like this. So every single piece of furniture, every single painting was personally inspected and approved by Ludwig. Now, this had some sort of effect on uh, Munich and Bavaria in general as a centre of culture and craft in Germany after Ludwig's death, because it was Munich that became the city of the arts in Germany at the end of the 19th century um, under the Prince Regent, but largely because Ludwig had so uh, got all the workshops um, uh, working in Munich in order to provide a craftsman who could do the work for his different Schlösser. So uh, Ludwig, from that point of view, inspired a whole generation, if not two generations, of craftsmen in Bavaria. And it's not for nothing that Bavaria was the place where uh, people went to art school around the turn of the century. It was the development of very many modern movements in art and culture because the foundations had been laid by, yes, by the grandfather as well, but particularly by Ludwig in developing all this furniture design, uh, the Gobelin, the tapestries and that sort of thing, which had been very much encouraged by Ludwig when he was king. I, I might be wrong here, I'm probably am, but what did, wasn't the, didn't the Nazis use the castle as well as art connect, for art collecting during the Second World War, if I'm not too mistaken? What they used, um, what they, they filled them, um, they, you may be right, there was plenty of room to put all sorts of things. I mean, if you go to Hohenkiemsday, uh, only a, a, as few of the rooms are actually decorated, the other thing's completely empty. So, uh, one wing of Hohenkiemsee was pulled down at the beginning of the 20th century because it was so expensive to keep up. But in fact, the castles have paid their way because only a few days after Ludwig's death, they were actually open to the public for the first time. And it was only a matter of a few years before tourists and uh, people coming to look at these astonishing creations had actually paid the bills for the castles. Ooh because um, they paid their entrance charges and, and everything else. So, ironically, it was this, uh, this public, this sort of dirty uh, working-class public, if you like, that paid the way for the castles in the end, the people who Ludwig himself would not have wanted to see tramping around the rooms of his castle. Mm. Something that we haven't talked about is that he did like to travel as well throughout his kingdom and how was it received by his people when he, during his travels in Bavaria? Yes, absolutely. He loved to ride around, particularly at night, um, in his carriages to ride or ride his horse, but ride around the carriage and would appear in the oddest places up in the mountains in Upper Bavaria. And the people would see him, they'd see their king. And up there in Upper Bavaria, I think much more so than, say, in Munich, where they probably had a rather more uh, different attitude. But up there in Upper Bavaria, they had great fondness for their king. In Oberammergau, for example, he was one of the people who made the uh, play, which is put on every 10 years, was on last year. Uh, he made it popular and attended a performance. He and three other people saw this massive play take place over six hours and gave uh, the little town of Oberammergau a great big crucifix, which they still treasure to this day. So um, in 
upper Bavaria in particular was very, very highly honoured and loved as this figure of their king who they might walk into at any time or or see his carriage coming by late at night or in the night or something like that. So he became a very much uh, associated with a sort of romantic figure who might pop up any moment. But as I say, he didn't tend to travel around in his carriage around Franconia. Um, he wasn't much seen in Lower Bavaria, and he certainly wasn't seen in Munich after a certain amount of time. You know, he um, stopped going to Munich. He went there as little as possible. When the laws had to be signed, um, as they had to be signed by the king, somebody had to do the business of going and finding the king and staying up late into the night for that moment that he'd allotted to sign the latest laws that have come from the parliament in Munich. Hmm. Something we have talked, we talked a little bit about this when you said that Germany, sorry, Bavaria, not Germany, would play a second fiddle to Prussia, but let, let's talk about Bavaria's role a little bit more in the North German Federation. Well, there was, there was a, a great reluctance to join it, but of course the Bavarian parliament was composed of elements that were as I said before, relatively sophisticated. There were the Ultramontanes, which were the Catholics, who wanted two um, Ultramontanes across the mountains, meaning that they looked to the Pope in Rome. Now, although uh, Ludwig was Catholic, he didn't believe that he should be subservient to the Pope. That would not have been his idea. So from that point of view, he didn't really agree with the Ultramontanes. And then for the more liberal members of the Bavarian parliament, Again, he wasn't um, happy with this idea of constitutional monarchy. So from as he grew older, less and less did the idea of observing the desires of a constitutional monarchy appeal to him. Now, the people who wanted the constitutional monarchy tended to be nationalists. So the idea of a national Germany uh, as one united Germany appealed to them, and they were likely to defend the idea um, particularly after the victorious wars of Bismarck. In 1864, Bismarck had pushed Austria out through the, um, after the uh, Franco-Danish War. 1866 was the decider, which meant that most of North Germany then essentially became under the uh, power of Prussia. And then uh, 1870, you know, the ball was rolling down the hill gathering moss as it went down. Mm. And by 1870, when uh, Germany defeated, under Prussian leadership, defeated the old enemy, France, and extracted uh, huge indemnities out, out of the French in 1871, it was impossible to resist the idea of, uh, of merging all the old principalities and kingdoms of Germany into one united Germany. But it wasn't really united Germany in the sense that, um, less so than Italy, for example, in that the old kingdoms still remained old kingdoms, mm. um, that the princes still had their palaces and lived in their palaces and were still princes. Um, Bavaria managed to get win an exceptional status. It had its own army. It had its own post office. It had its own uh, ministers. Uh, in a way that the other parts of Germany that had been similarly important uh, until 1871 didn't have the same power that uh, uh, 
Bavaria had. Bavaria became the free state. It was different in its status to the rest of Germany. That much Ludwig was able to secure. But it was impossible to argue that Bavaria was really a completely free spirit. It wasn't independent of Germany. And therefore, as such, it couldn't be pretended that the kings of Bavaria had uh, come out of it with the same power that they had had before. You know, the Wittelsbachs would play second fiddle to the Hohenzollerns, which was something that Ludwig particularly disliked. Now, was there jealousy among the other princes in in Germany and the North German Federation that Bavaria has such power and they were basically, they, they did not have as much power as Bavaria did? I don't think there was a, a, a particularly... Um, audible noise made by other German states. The, the state that was treated worse by Bismarck were the Hanovers. And as I said, that they uh, Bismarck stole the contents of the treasury in order to use it for bribing people for political ends. And the Hanovers were more or less deposed, which of course caused slight problems with Britain, because Hanover, the British monarchy, the Georges, and indeed Queen Victoria, had come from the Hanoverian family. So the behavior towards Hanover caused a certain amount of problems with relations between the new Germany uh, and with Britain. And this, uh, obviously, it's a, it's a different subject, but this survived, obviously, all the way down to 1914, this feeling that the Hohenzollerns had mishandled, had, uh, had been unfair towards what was formerly a, a cousin territory, which was Hanover. So apart from Hanover, I can't really see there was a particular, a few glitches with Saxony, but nothing really to the degree that uh, it was experienced in Bavaria. I think probably because Bavaria had, in the 18th century, been so close to taking over the Holy Roman Empire themselves. You know, uh, the Prussians couldn't, by dint of being Protestant, they couldn't have done it anyhow. They couldn't have married into the, um, into the, uh, the Habsburg family because um, they were Catholics. So uh, Bavaria did see itself as next in line. And so, um, and still that attitude to some extent is something that reigns in Bavaria now. If you meet Bavarian noblemen, they tend to give you very much this version of, of their history. Hmm. So let's talk about it, because it was a true d'etat attempt, if you will, if I'm not against Ludwig II, as well to dethrone him, if I... Remember, remember correctly. Who who tried to dethrone him? The, according to my sources, there were there were attempts. I might be wrong. It might be the earlier Ludwig I'm referring to here. But let's talk about ignore that one for a second and just let's talk about the towards the end of Ludwig's life. And up to yes, the well, I mean, you know, there were growing problems. First, first World War. Yeah. So there were growing problems of debt. Uh, essentially, his income did not meet his outgoings. Um, and so he, uh, there wasn't nearly enough money to pay for um, all his fantasies and uh, all his, um, uh, the things that he required to build these things. So that led to borrowing. And of course, first of all, you borrowed from banks and then you had to borrow from other banks and then you had to go and borrow from British banks because the British banks were the richest banks in Europe at the time. Uh, and eventually, you know, when these people didn't get their money back, um, they foreclosed on him. So, you know, 
uh, it became very, very difficult to satisfy, to have the material needed uh, to uh, uh, pay, uh, to uh, stock these castles, to furnish these castles, because uh, uh, Ludwig couldn't borrow any more money. So the choice of uh, courtiers that he employed was he'd sack somebody and bring somebody else in because they said that they could find some way of getting the money. So everything became a desperate desire to have money. Meanwhile, there was the embarrassment or in Munich that the king didn't show himself in Munich, was not particularly popular with his people in Munich. And then uh, all he did was be a drain on the exchequer, which would bring you essentially to Wagner, who became the most glaring example of um, Ludwig's desire to spend money uh, and money that he didn't necessarily have. (coughs) So the Wagner case was also uh, something that rather proved uh, the popularity of uh, Wagner, uh, sorry, (laughs) Ludwig in the broader terms, but also showed that there was a growing resentment against Ludwig at home because um, yeah, uh, Wagner did very, very little uh, to uh, endear himself to the Bavarian people while he was wooing their king. So um, uh, this became a, a little um, uh, cause célèbre, we might call it, um, was the business of what to do about Wagner. Hmm. There's something I want to talk about as well is... So, so there's a problem with succession of Ludwig the Section, as we talked about, he was a homosexual, and yes. the problem he did not, he didn't, he probably killed, but he did not want to father children or take a bride, which you know caused a problem in heirs for the throne. Mm. So how, how did how was this going to be solved with the succession of the throne to Ludwig the Section? Well, he he had an uncle, um, and that hun- uncle took over after his death and became Prince Regent. Now, it was often said that um, it was said that he, uh, this man had connived at trying to have uh, Ludwig uh, step down, abdicate as king, because he wanted the job for himself. Now, this is, there are still people who say that this is the case, but it doesn't really look as if that, that is the case. Um, the uncle um, didn't want to hear about this, and he was constantly being asked, you know, can you step in, can you deal with this, is there some way to make him abdicate and that sort of thing. And it was only when a commission was formed to examine all these things, to look at the debts, to try and work out whether he was actually mentally fit to be king and that sort of thing, that reluctantly the uncle agreed to put the case for abdication. So... Um, uh, he then took over, and it was his son um, who uh, was the last uh, uh, king of Bavaria uh, in um, 1918, because uh, Otto, as I said, the brother was a hopeless lunatic and uh, survived, I think, until 1913 or so. But, uh, you know, he, he was not in the state to do anything. So... Um, Briefly, of course, he took over from his brother and became king, but um, there was no case a question that he could rule Bavaria either. So there, there were members of the family. There was a succession because the uncle 
um, the younger brother of his father, um, did actually have children himself, and therefore um, there was a succession. And there are still people today who would be uh, kings of Bavaria if Bavaria was still a monarchy. Have you met some of these descendants from this family? I've met Wittelsbachs. It's quite a big family. You know, you'd, um, everybody in Munich knows the Wittelsbachs. Hmm. So, of course, we've thought some of the legacy of Ludwig II, but what, what would you say was his real legacy? And we thought, and again, we talked about this, some of this, but, you know, just a summary, what would you say is his legacy? Well, it's an interesting question. I I found just completely by accident when I was in Bavaria last, uh, last year that on the um, around the time of his death, you know, the anniversary of his death. I was in the woods where, uh, on the uh, Starnbergsee, where he died, uh, taking uh, my little group down to see the little chapel there, which is on the place where he waded out into the water. Uh, there's a cross there in the water where he was found. And I found myself, actually, I didn't know this was happening, that there was a mass being held there to celebrate the life of Ludwig II, as there is every year. And therefore, I listened to the speeches um, that were made by members, I think, of the sort of local Ludwig society that meets there every year. And they came out with all sorts of things about how he stood up for the people, he stood up for the church, what a pious man he was, um, how conscientious a ruler he was, how he had fostered the trade unions within Russia, sorry, in Bavaria. Um, there was a whole litany of uh, praise being pronounced about just what a fantastic king he was. Now, obviously, this isn't the most impartial stuff on earth. This would have been the Ludwig II Appreciation Society, uh, with many members of the Wittelsbach family who still live in the little Schloss next door, by the way. You know, the Schlossburg, it's called. It's only about 10 minutes' walk from where we were. So, um, and that's where he was imprisoned at the end of his life. So, hence the fact that's where, where he died. And uh, so, for Bavarians who are keen Ludwig fans, he leaves an important legacy of being a proper uh, Wittelsbach, a proper Bavarian king who stood up for Bavaria by not uh, giving in to Prussia, which of course he did give in. Russia and he received all these bribes from Russia and that sort of thing, but who actually represented a proud figure in the history of Bavaria. In terms of a legacy that is rather more solid than that, his legacy is the architecture that he left. Now, we all have sort of strong views about, you know, how much um, uh, that architecture has an importance. Um, uh, but, you know, this neo-Rococo style, which was important in that it dwelt on the Rococo, which was a Bavarian style in itself, and perhaps better in Bavaria than anywhere else. Um, and these fantastic buildings, which are such a visible monument to his rather tragic reign. But I couldn't say that Ludwig left a political legacy of any importance other than pinpointing the problems of a man who perhaps lived outside his time in that he was not prepared 
to accept constitutional monarchy. If you say after the coronation in this country on, on Saturday, that we have a figure like King Charles who cannot represent or freely say what he thinks about his ministers or his governments or anything like that, because he's not allowed to be political. Now, um, that sort of position for Ludwig was anathema. He hated it. He, he wanted to rule like Louis XIV. He wanted to be an absolute monarch. And if he couldn't be an absolute monarch, in the end, he didn't want to be a monarch. Well, we mentioned that uh, Ludwig, Ludwig II came to, to the throne to soon. I would say rather the opposite is the case for Charles III. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's come rather late to the throne, um, whereas Ludwig came rather early to the throne. I suppose, I suppose the best solution is somewhere in the middle. Um, hmm. But uh, neither of them perhaps had, had their ideal time. Hmm. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on to talk about Ludwig the Genius. Also, the important the title of this episode is then mentioned this by the way it's called the Swan King. And I haven't asked about this, I've been meaning to before we ran this up. How did it come, come to get this title, the Swan King? Well, it's a reference to the, to the Lohengrin legend, if you know the Wagner. Um, uh, uh, opera, Lohengrin, uh, at the beginning of Lohengrin, the prince is, is, uh, uh, disappears. Uh, and uh, because uh, a, a pre-Christian woman, a, a witch called Ortrud, has turned him into a swan. And in the end of Lohengrin, the swan returns and uh, retakes the form of uh, the prince. Uh, and uh, that's the end of the opera. Now, he was called the Swan King. Even his father, Max, produced this image of the swan, the association of Lohengrin, the legend of Lohengrin, which had been written by this Franconian poet in the Middle Ages, with the kings of Bavaria, because mm. it was a, a, you know, meant to be a properly Bavarian tale. And so if you look at Hohenschwangau, the castle built by his father, Max, is an enormous swan on the top. Now, that, um, I think, was put there by Ludwig. But in the paintings, of course, in both palaces, when he was a little boy, he saw this legend of the swan. And the swan is everywhere in Ludwig's castles. There's always swan decorations, door handles, mirrors with swans on them. It was the image, rather like uh, the Bourbon, um, rather like the kings of France, even before the, uh, the Bourbon, there was one sort of Wappentier, the Germans would call it, an animal, an armorial animal um, that represented that particular king. And as far as Ludwig was concerned, it was the swan. But the swan had um, its origin in Wolfram von Eschenbach's uh, 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 saga of the swan that becomes the opera Lohengrin um, and um, the association, therefore, with the swan, which was you know, the prince brought back in the form of the swan in order to rule his people. Was this a nickname given to him during or after his lifetime? I think probably but the association was there during his lifetime because it was very much a Bavarian legend. He grew up with it. He didn't invent these um, uh, themes that would become Wagnerian operas. They hadn't actually been written as operas yet. They were projects as he was growing up. And of course, he loved to be able to give Wagner money and encouragement in order to write these operas, because he'd been rehearsing them himself 
with his friends when he was a little boy. And the idea of helping Wagner to realize these operas on these themes was, of course, one of the great excitements of the early years of his monarchy. But sadly for him, uh, the enormous amount of money that Wagner took off him meant that the people of Munich rose up, essentially, to get Wagner thrown out of Bavaria. So the idea that he was going to carry on funding these wonderful artistic ideas and opera houses and that sort of thing never happened, much to his annoyance. Though he did manage to lend Wagner the money to build uh, Bayreuth, the theatre in Bayreuth, but by that stage, he couldn't give it to him. He had to lend it to him because uh, the parliament in Bavaria would not have allowed him to... Um, to fully fund the project of the stage for Wagner's operas in Bayreuth. Again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Before you go, do you have any social media and any links you wanted to put in the description of this episode? Anything you want to promote at all? No, not really. I mean, you know, I'm, I, you'll find me on Twitter. I think I've got you on Twitter, haven't I? There. Um, so, um, uh, no, I think so. Um, tell them to buy my books. Um, uh, apart from that, I, I'm not sure I've got anything to add. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast again. This has been Matt H12. We are available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a review of this podcast. If you liked it, that would help us out a lot. Also, check out some of the, our other episodes. If you like this one, you've definitely got something that you should like, find that you like. Please like, share, and subscribe. I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.